You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of theology today by continuing our examination of eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Three weeks ago, we quoted Louis Burkhoff, who wrote that eschatology is the one locus of theology in which all the other loci must come to a head, to a final conclusion. Dr. Kuiper correctly points out that every other locus left some question unanswered, to which eschatology should supply the answer. Well, we've now examined how eschatology answers the questions left open by our studies of theology proper, anthropology, Christology, and soteriology. Dr. Spencer, how would you like to proceed today? By moving on to the last locus with an unanswered question, namely ecclesiology, the study of the church. According to Burkhoff, the question left unanswered in that locus is the final apotheosis of the church. Or we could say the question is, what is the final glorified state of the church in heaven? That question certainly was not discussed when we covered ecclesiology. We were focused on the church here and now in this world. And that was our focus for good reason. But now that we are considering the doctrine of last things, it's reasonable to ask what form the church will take in the end. Back in session 228, we gave a definition for the church, which was taken from Robert Raymond. He wrote that, quote, The church in Scripture is composed of all the redeemed in every age who are saved by grace through personal faith in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman and suffering Messiah, unquote. And so, given that definition, the real question becomes, what is the final glorified state of all the redeemed people of God in heaven? And how would you answer that question? Well, I think the most wondrous answer is given to us in the book of Revelation. But before we give that answer, I need to remind our listeners that the Bible uses many metaphors to refer to the church. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Paul said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In that verse, the church is called the elect. The church is also called God's children. For example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, Paul wrote to Christians saying, quote, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, unquote. Also, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul wrote to believers saying, quote, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Those are all amazing ways of describing the church, God's elect, God's children, and his living temple. And there are others as well, but the one I want to focus on now is that the church is called the Bride of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23-28, Paul wrote, quote, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, unquote. And Paul then goes on talking about husbands and wives and concludes in verse 32 by saying, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, that passage never explicitly says that the church is the bride of Christ, but it certainly makes a clear analogy by comparing the relationship between Christ and the church to the relationship between a husband and wife. And in addition to that passage, we also read in Revelation about the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is referring to Jesus Christ, who is called the Lamb of God. In Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, we read, quote, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Unquote. This explicitly speaks of the wedding of the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, and his bride, who is wearing fine linen, which was given to her, but which also represents the righteous acts of the saints. Therefore, the saints, who are the church, the redeemed people of God, are the bride of Christ. And those verses also agree with what we have said about the good works of believers. Salvation is a free gift of God, which fits with the fine linen being given to the bride. But if anyone is truly saved, he will have good works to demonstrate that his salvation is real, which goes along with saying that the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Yeah, it all does fit together. And now, knowing that the church collectively is called the Bride of Christ, let me read Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. John wrote that, quote, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so now the wife of the Lamb, which is the church, is called the holy city, Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, there's a great deal of imagery here, but that much is clear. And prior to those verses, in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, we read, quote, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Unquote. Remember that we read earlier that the church is also called the temple of the living God? Well, here we see God coming to dwell in the heavenly Jerusalem, which represents the church, and is again compared to a bride. And this heavenly Jerusalem will be a wonderful place. In the very next verse, verse 4, we read that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is a wonderful picture of the glorified church as a whole. And we're also told a great deal about the final glorified state of the individual believers who together comprise the church. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, we're told that those believers who have already died and are at this time awaiting the second coming of Christ 
exist as souls that have been made perfect, as we noted in session 228. In other words, glorified believers will be completely without sin. But we will not remain disembodied spirits. As we noted in that previous session, we will all receive a resurrection body when Christ comes again. And Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, that, quote, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Hallelujah. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know it will be a lot better than the body I have now. (laughs) It will definitely be a lot better than the best body that has ever existed in this world. For one thing, it will no longer be subject to sickness, pain, aging, or death. We aren't given any other explicit information about this body, and I don't want to go into all the speculation that has abounded in this area, but suffice it to say that we will all be pleasantly surprised and happy with our new bodies. We are also told in several places that we will receive a crown. It is called a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8, a crown of life in James chapter 1, verse 12, and a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, verse 4. And this is obviously not a real physical crown. No, but it clearly represents the reality that we will be righteous, we will possess eternal life, and we will be glorious. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we read this amazing statement, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That statement always blows my mind. We will see him, most likely meaning God the Father, as he is. That is impossible to grasp fully. And it doesn't imply that we will completely comprehend God in any way, only that our perception of him, in whatever form that takes, will be entirely accurate. But the verse also said explicitly that what we will be has not yet been made known. There is mystery that remains with regard to our final glorified state. And yet, we are told more. For example, we're told about the saints in heaven in Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, quote, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There's a lot of information in those verses, even though they aren't as detailed or as specific as we might like. We will be before the throne of God. What an incredible thought that is. And he will spread his tent over us, which clearly refers to his protection. And we will never hunger or thirst. In other words, our every need will be taken care of. And we will not experience scorching heat or any other harm. And even though it sounds paradoxical, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will be our shepherd. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes, which repeats what I read earlier from Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. And in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, we read about the four living creatures and the elders around the throne in heaven, singing a new song to the Lamb in the center of the throne, who is Christ. They sing, quote, 
You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now that's incredible to imagine. We will reign with Christ. And Paul told us about that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. He wrote that, If we endure, we will also reign with him, referring to Jesus Christ. And Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that we will judge angels. Heaven is going to be an amazing place, and even though we are not given a great deal of detailed information about it or about what we will do there, we can be certain that it will be better than our wildest imagination. And in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus gave us a wonderful promise. He said, quote, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. That is an amazing promise. We will be with God. At the end of the day, I think the two facts about heaven that are the most glorious and incomprehensible are first, that we will see God face to face in some way, and secondly, that we will be without sin. Both of these things are completely foreign to our experience in this world, so it's impossible for us to imagine what they will be like. But we are to live all of life in joyful expectation of that glorious day. Yes, we are. In, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, we're told that, quote, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness." We need to be very careful to notice that this passage provides great encouragement to live holy lives. First, we are promised a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And as you said earlier, it's impossible to imagine what it will be like to be completely without sin. But if heaven is the home of righteousness, that will be the case. Yes, it will. And this passage also encourages us to live holy lives by telling us that we can speed the coming of that day, which is a wonderful thing to consider as we do the work God has given us to do. But there's also a terrible warning in that verse, which also serves to encourage us to live holy lives. We're told that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. That is a terrifying thought. And Jesus himself warned us that this could happen at any time. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 39, he said, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. 
and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That is a sobering warning. When Jesus said that they knew nothing about what would happen, it wasn't because they hadn't been warned. It was because they wouldn't believe. We're told in 2 Peter 2 verse 5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, which surely means that he was warning the people while he was building the ark that God's judgment was coming. But his neighbors laughed at him. They must have thought he was completely insane building this huge ship on dry land. And most people today think Christians are insane for believing that there is a heaven and a hell. Or at least that's what they usually say. But when people die and you attend their memorial services, it's strange how people speak about the person looking down on them or that the dead person will be proud of someone or some other similar comment. Most people will acknowledge, if they're being completely honest, that they don't think physical death is the end of existence. God made us for eternity. And the truth is that there are only two possible destinies for every single human being. Either we will spend eternity in hell, being justly punished for our sins, hating God and in complete misery, or we will spend eternity in heaven with God and all the other perfected saints, enjoying glorious fellowship forever. And that is the final glorified state of all the redeemed people of God in heaven, which answers the question left open by our study of ecclesiology. And that also finishes our available time for today. So let me remind our listeners that they can send questions or comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org and we'll do our best to answer you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the doctrine of eschatology. We hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.